Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Thanks very much to everyone watching today from around the world. Um, Translation. And it's a world that's been uh, turned upside down and inside out by the coronavirus pandemic. Like Alice from the, like Alice from the famous uh, novel, uh, we've gone through the looking glass. We can see that the market system is in uh, a complete catastrophe. The laws of capitalism have broken down. Production's been paralyzed because supply has been uh, shut down. But on the other hand, people are wary of going outside and therefore demand has collapsed as well. And so the famous invisible hand of the market doesn't know which way to point. And we saw this earlier this year when for the first time in history, there were negative oil prices. Now, governments have been forced to intervene on an unprecedented scale. First of all, to try and prevent a complete collapse of the economy. They've been paying wages for months of this furlough scheme to try and keep people uh, in, a, in a kind of or keep the economy in a state of suspended animation. But now, as the uh, as the economy begins to thaw, the, the, the governments are still intervening on a massive scale to prop up the system. There's been about eight to nine trillion dollars of state support for the world economy, over four trillion in government borrowing and spending. It's about 17 percent of world GDP and almost another $4 trillion in terms of central banks buying up assets and creating new money, what's known as quantitative easing, where, they, where the central banks uh, buy up things from the banks to help banks lend more, but also they're printing money just to buy up government debt and allow governments to spend directly through just printing money, what's known as monetary financing. Now, in reality, the line between monetary policy and fiscal policy is completely dissolved. The central banks, which are supposed to be independent, have united with governments to try and prop up the imploding capitalist system. Interest rates were already rock bottom in most countries, and now they're negative in many places. They've done what they call a helicopter drop of money, where they print money and give it directly to people, to households. And big business, which is going bankrupt, has been demanding and receiving huge bailouts, particularly the airlines. But even with all of these desperate measures, it's not enough. The economy is still in freefall. It's dropping faster and further even than the 2008 crash. Now, we've seen a decade or more of, of anemic growth, of very weak uh, employment, very minimal job creation. But even these weak, small gains have been wiped out overnight by the coronavirus crisis. The IMF is predicting a 5% fall in GDP worldwide this year as a result. And that's actually down from earlier predictions in April. The USA is predicted to fall by 8%, the EU and Britain by 10% each. In the UK, there was a 20% fall in GDP just in the month of April. And unemployment has skyrocketed across the world. It's over 11% in the USA, with 50 million people claiming unemployment benefits. And it's predicted to be over 15% in Britain by the end of this year. The International Labour Organization predicts that 1.5 billion globally will lose their incomes as a result of this crisis. 
and other charities have predicted a biblical starvation, what they call a biblical level of starvation with 265 million facing famine and hunger. And all of this is without the effects of a second wave, which in reality will just be a continuation of the first wave. The virus was never really under control. And for the working class, it's not going to feel like a wave, but a tsunami, a tsunami of job cuts, of job losses, of attacks on working conditions. Now, some of the optimistic bourgeois commentators talk about a V-shaped recovery, but there's many other letters in the alphabet. Some are talking about a W because of a, a second wave and a second lockdown. Some talk about a Nike tick going down and then gradually up over a long period of time. Some talk about a U-shaped or even an L-shaped recovery. In other words, just a fall and then a long stagnation. But all of these ideas of a, of a recovery are based on the idea that the disease will be under control and there'll be a return to some sort of normality. In other words, they think that the crisis is simply one because of the pandemic. And once the pandemic's gone, the crisis will be over. In fact, some of the libertarian types think that this will be good for the economy. It will get rid of the, uh, all of the redundant industries. They think there'll be what they call creative destruction, where new industries will emerge from the ashes of the old. Now, clearly, big business and big business politicians are pushing for a reopening, a rapid reopening of the economy under pressure for the bosses to make their profits, putting profits ahead of lives. But we have to state very clearly, the world economy is not going to just bounce back. The pandemic's going to leave a permanent scar on the globe. And that's because when capitalism collapses, it doesn't just uh, go into some sort of uh, pause mode. In fact, what we're going to see is that the industries that are temporarily shutting down and the workers who are being furloughed, many of these will never see the light of day again. And that's because like the virus, economic collapse is also contagious. The economy is not some sort of machine that can just be put into stasis and then revved up again at a later date. It's not a yo-yo where you can just have it go down and then up at the will uh, uh, and the whims of uh, politicians or policymakers. There are some times when you do get recessions that occur like this, which represent a kind of business cycle, as they call it, a rhythmic breathing of the capitalist system. But this crisis comes on the back of a deep crisis in 2008 and a period, a long, long period of austerity. So it's not going to be some sort of temporary ephemeral crisis. We're facing what we call as Marxists an organic crisis of capitalism, one in which all the accumulated contradictions within the system come to the fore. The pandemic has certainly exacerbated the situation, but the thing is it has not caused the crisis. Rather, what it's done is to accelerate all of these contradictions and all this crisis that has been brewing for some time. It's brought all the tensions in the global economy to the surface with a bang. And the reason the crisis is going to be so deep is because all of these problems have been accumulating for decades. They're problems that were not resolved by the 2008 crash or the subsequent years of, of austerity. What are these problems? Well, capitalism has been stumbling along for years on the basis of credit. You have what they call uh, zombie companies that are, are stalking the land that just survive on the basis of cheap money. We see that productivity growth and investment have been stagnant for decades. And while cash has been piling up in the hands of uh, big business and the bosses, the rest of the world has been drowning in debt. You have what the bourgeois call excess capacity weighing down on prices and profits. And as the world market shrinks, the protectionism is on the rise. World trade has been slowing down and, and countries have been looking to export the crisis elsewhere. And now we see that the world economy is stuck in a vicious circle. And that's because one person's uh, income is another person's sale. 
In other words, when workers are made unemployed, they lose their wages. And if they have no wages, then what they call effective demand goes down. If there's no consumer demand, then also there'll be no investment from big business. And less investment means less production and means fewer jobs. And that's the vicious cycle of capitalist crisis, you see. And this is what we're going to see in the period ahead as well. Whole, whole sectors of the economy being wiped out. Tourism, retail, leisure, hospitality, all of these are going to be changed forever if they still exist at all. Commercial property prices are set to collapse. The oil sector and car manufacturers are facing an existential crisis. Airlines are practically falling out of the sky. And as these zombie companies begin to die, then banks will also see a wave of defaults that will put them in trouble as well. And unlike the crash of 2008, 2009, the crisis today is a truly global crisis. At the time of the last crash, you had China, which was able to keep growing because of Keynesian spending, government investment and spending. And this had a knock-on effect for the big oil producers, for the uh, countries that make lots of raw materials. They saw their economies continue to grow as well. But look at the situation now. China is now also drowning in debt. Every country, including China, is looking to export somewhere else. But to whom? As demand everywhere falls, you'll see again this rise of protectionism even further. Now, comparisons with the Great Depression, I think, are no exaggeration. If anything, they're an understatement. The world's population, and particularly the world working class, is much bigger and stronger than ever, and much stronger than it was and larger than it was in the 1930s. And unlike the 1930s or even 2008, the world economy is even more integrated now. And this means the fate of all countries is intrinsically interlinked. So I think this is the perspective for capitalism in the years ahead, this downward spiral of depression. And it's similar to what John Maynard Keynes, the English bourgeois liberal economist, identified in the 1930s. It was this dynamic of depression that he wrote about in his famous general theory. Keynes started by criticizing his bourgeois predecessors. He attacked what he called the laissez-faire uh, theory of uh, economics, the idea that the market was perfectly efficient. He didn't believe that there was such a thing as a long-run equilibrium where the economy would all balance out. He famously said, in the long run, we're all dead. But this idea of the efficiency of the market, it came from a theory known as Say's Law, named after a French economist called Jean-Baptiste Say. And Say believed that supply and demand would always match. He thought that supply creates its own demand. In other words, for every buyer, there would be a seller. But in reality, Marx explained, in reality, because of money, because of credit and debt, this isn't always the case. Wealth can be hoarded and consumers can buy without selling. And the same, the same for businesses and investors. And, and it was Keynes in his general theory who attacked this idea of Say's law and, and said that this is not the case. Buyers and sellers will not always find each other. And the economy would not always find a nice, perfect equilibrium because of the invisible hand of the market. But with these criticisms, Keynes was really just regurgitating something that Marx had pointed out many decades before. But he was criticizing from a liberal perspective, not from a socialist perspective. Keynes's ideas were aimed at saving capitalism, not overthrowing capitalism. He thought Marxists were dogmatists, whereas he was a pragmatist. And he suggested that governments should step in to save capitalism by making up for the lack of demand in the economy, by providing public investment and creating jobs. And he thought that by doing this, you'd give workers wages that would boost consumption and in turn investment, turning that vicious circle into a virtuous one where the economy would restart and uh, have life in back in it again. 
Now, the idea of Keynesianism became and is now synonymous with this idea of government borrowing and spending, what they call deficit financing. Now, Keynes thought that what should happen is that governments should spend on socially useful things like houses and roads and infrastructure. But he said cynically that it, as long as workers got money in their pockets, it didn't matter what these uh, infrastructure projects were, were doing. He said as you could even dig up holes, bury money and get people to dig the holes back up again, get dig the money back up again, as long as they got money into their pockets. In other words, he wasn't bothered about whether things useful to society were being created, as long as workers were getting money and therefore the economy was functioning. In other words, it was all about saving capitalism, not about providing needs. And Keynes's ideas were taken up partly within uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s, where you had the building of things like the Hoover Dam and other big infrastructure projects. But the problem is it didn't work. The Great Depression continued all the way up until the Second World War. And in fact, there were repeated falls within the economy, including in America. And in the end, unemployment only uh, came to a halt because of the war mopping up all the unemployed workers. And in fact, Keynes himself, after the, the Great Depression, was forced to admit. He said, it is, it seems, politically impossible for a capitalist democracy to organize expenditure on the scale necessary to make the grand experiments which would prove my case except in war conditions. In other words, the only way that Keynesianism could work was, was, was when you had a war going on, mopping up unemployed workers and investing in weapons, which is very ironic because Keynes saw himself as a pacifist. And in fact, another big irony is where you see the biggest Keynesian programs today. The largest Keynesian experiment in recent years has been in China since 2008. Vast sums have been spent on infrastructure and industry by the government. But again, it has not helped. You've now got empty cities, what they call ghost cities, with no one living there. You've got roads that go to nowhere, bridges and railroads and things like infrastructure that isn't used. And now total debt in China is over 300% of GDP, double what it was before uh, the crash in 2008. And it is exacerbated on a world scale, the excess capacity in all sorts of industries. Industries from steel to smartphones are now completely saturated. The market for these goods is completely saturated on a world scale. In other words, all of this Keynesian spending in China has just paved the way for an even bigger crisis in the future. And, like, and now, just like all the other governments in the world, the Chinese government is out of ammo. They've got no tools left to fight this new crisis. And in fact, what you're seeing is what they call diminishing returns. The more money they put in, the less effect it has. And again, it's ironic that it should fall to the so-called Communist Party of China to carry out this huge Keynesian program. Now, we would say that the Chinese Communist Party is not that communist and it's not that much of a party. But nevertheless, Keynes, during his lifetime, he was avidly opposed to communism and socialism and Marxism. Keynes repeatedly emphasized that he was not on the side of the working class or the labor movement. In fact, he was, he was quite explicitly and, and self-proclaimedly a, a part of the liberal elite. He stated that the class war will find me on the side of the educated bourgeoisie. And he saw his program as being one of trying to save capitalism from its own contradictions. And this is also ironic because today it's the left-wing leaders of the labor movement who are the most avid supporters of Keynesianism. 
They've completely abandoned socialism and just want to manage capitalism, as Keynes proposed. And now you've also got a, a new modern kind of turbocharged form of Keynesianism, what they call modern monetary theory. Now, in reality, this isn't that modern and it's not that much of a theory. It's basically a, a new kind of neo-Keynesianism with an emphasis on creating money rather than creating debt in order to uh, finance and government spending and stimulate the economy. Now, the, the MMT uh, advocates say that governments that control their own money supply should just print money, create money in order to spend on what is needed. They think that taxes are mainly there to try and control inflation, and they want to try and manage demand in the economy by having what they call a jobs guarantee, the government providing jobs to manage demand and, uh, and keep unemployment low. Now, all of this is fundamentally just the same ideas as Keynesianism, the idea that you can manage capitalism and stimulate the economy. Now, both of these, Keynesianism and MMT, they think that they're offering so-called solutions to the current crisis and to crisis in general. They correctly highlight that under, within these crises, you have a huge underutilization of our resources in society. People are unemployed, factories are idle. Hello? I didn't get the translation. Sorry, I've lost the uh, translation. Hang on a sec. Yeah, Nico? Yeah, yeah, okay, you're back. Sorry, don't know what happened there. Dropped out. Um, yes, they, they explained that uh, you have uh, this criminal underutilization of our productive forces. And the MMT lots say that inflation's not a problem because you have all of this excess capacity that can be utilized. And to a certain extent, they're, they're right, they're correct. It's true that the biggest fear of the bourgeois today is not inflation, but deflation, because there's this depression, this collapse in demand. And this puts a huge downward pressure on prices. But the thing that Keynesianism and MMT never say, what they can never explain, is why have we got all of this crisis, all of this underutilization, all of this excess capacity? Why is all of this the case in the first place? For Keynesians and, and the MMT, all of these crises are just accidents that come out of nowhere. Keynes always said that crisis was just because of a lack of confidence, because of animal spirits. He, he thought it was all about just fear and uncertainty. But the point is that this uncertainty, this lack of confidence, it isn't just it doesn't appear out of nothing. It reflects a real material crisis in the economy. And to understand why capitalism goes into these crises, we have to go to the ideas of Marxism. Now, each crisis expresses itself differently. In the Great Depression, in the 1970s, in 2008, and now, each of these crises had some sort of different trigger that set it off. With the Great Depression, it was the Wall Street crash and the, and the, the fears on the stock market. In the 1970s, they thought it was an oil crisis because of the oil price going up that caused the crisis. In 2008, we were told it was all just because of subprime mortgages. And now they say it's just because of the pandemic. But none of these are purely accidental. Rather, it's as we say in Marxism, accident is a reflection of necessity. In other words, the contradictions in the economy, in the global system, build up and express themselves finally in, through these little accidents. Marx explained that crises are inherent within capitalism because of the contradictions at the heart of the capitalist system. And the primary contradiction is what Marx called overproduction. And this is a contradiction that arises out of the relationships within capitalism itself, because capitalism is a system of private ownership and production for profit. Now, to understand this, we can go all the way back to capital and Marx's economic writing. 
Marx explained that capitalism is a system of, of uh, commodity production and exchange, or rather where its commodity production exchange is generalized and universal. Commodities, Marx says, are goods and services produced for exchange and not for individual consumption. It's uh, production for a market, for, for exchange. And this existed before capitalism. But it's under capitalism that this becomes generalized, that everything becomes a commodity. Everything can be bought and sold on the market. Now, Marx explained that all commodities have a dual character. They have a use value. They have some sort of utility to individuals, to society. But Marx says that he couldn't just explain on the basis of, of something's usefulness how it could be exchanged for something else. Because all commodities have different use values. They have different qualities, different characteristics. So you have to ask, what is it that determines the exchange value of a commodity? How much of one commodity is exchanged for another? There must be some sort of common universal yardstick that all things have in common that can relate them to each other. And Marx said that this thing that they all have in common, all commodities are products of labor. And he said that the value of a commodity was determined by the amount of labor time that went into it. But not just the individual labor of the individual worker, but what he called socially necessary labor time. In other words, there's some sort of average amount of labor that goes into a commodity based on the current amount of technology, the current level of production and technology and science. And the individual uh, producers, it doesn't matter whether they're less efficient, they have to be able to keep up with that current level of technology and productivity within society. Your commodity isn't more valuable just because you're less efficient and it takes you longer to produce it. Now, this idea of the labor theory of value was uh, a big part of Marx's uh, economic theory. And it was the basis for Marx being able to explain where profit came from. And it was this mystery. The origin of profit was the mystery to all the bourgeois economists that came before Marx. They couldn't explain the origins of surplus value. Because for them, they thought that profits just came from buying cheap and selling dear. In other words, that profits were all just the result of cheating and swindling. But Marx showed that the whole of society cannot get richer and more wealthy just by one person robbing another. If you rob Peter to pay Paul, all you're doing is distributing wealth. You're not creating any new wealth, any surplus. So Marx explained that profit had to come not from distribution and exchange, but from production. And from the fact that workers sell a very special type of commodity, they sell to the capitalists what they call labor power. In other words, Marx explained that this labor power was the workers' ability to work for a certain period of time, for a day, a week or a month. The worker doesn't sell their labor, their output, their work, they sell their ability to work. And this labor power, like any other commodity, also has a value. And it's based on the same thing, on the socially necessary labor time required to produce this commodity. In the case of uh, workers' labor power, that means the, uh, the, the, the value, the, the labor time, the socially necessary labor time that goes into producing all the things required to produce and reproduce the working class. The, 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 the shelter, the food, the clothing, the education, the healthcare, all of these that are required to produce the working class and their families. But the secret to profits, Marx explained, was that the value of this labor power was less than the value that the worker produces in the course of a day or a week or a month. In other words, uh, as an example, in a, in a working day of eight hours, the working class might take only four hours to produce the, the equivalent of their own wages. 
And in the other four hours, they're effectively working for free for the capitalist and producing surplus value. And that, and that difference between uh, what, they, what they receive in wages and the amount of uh, value they produce in the course of the day, that's where surplus value comes from. It's the unpaid labor of the working class. So there's no cheating that goes on here. Marx assumes that the capitalist pays a fair wage to the worker and the worker receives a fair wage from the capitalist. But even if this is the case, Marx explains, there still will be this production of surplus value by the worker. Now, this ex explanation for where profits came from revealed all of the dynamics of capitalism, because it's the drive for profits and the competition between the capitalists that forces them to invest in machinery and technology and development of science, trying to push down their own costs of production in order to boost profits. And in fact, it's only because of this that the capitalists invest. It's only to make profits that capitalism sees investment. And so to go back to the Keynesians and the MMT advocates, they're completely utopian when they think that governments can stimulate the economy because the dynamics of the capitalist system are not set by governments and their spending, nor by the needs of society. Rather, the dynamics of capitalism are set by the ability of the capitalists to make a profit. If they cannot make a profit, then they will not invest. And that's why we've seen over the last decade or more that all of the money printed and created has done nothing. Countries like Japan and elsewhere have conducted huge programs of quantitative easing and creating new money. But still the economies there are stuck in a deep depression. Japan has been stuck in a depression for decades. And that's because in capitalism, the majority of money is not created by the government in the first place. It's not the money created that stimulates the economy, but the other way around. The majority of money is created by private banks because people come looking for loans to invest, to have mortgages. And when you've got a crisis in the system, that demand for, for money, for, for credit collapses as well. So it's not enough to try and create money to stimulate the economy, as Keynesians or uh, MMT uh, advocates suggest. You can't manage capitalism. As the famous saying from the labor movement goes, you can't, uh, you can't plan what you don't control and you don't control what you don't own. Now, Marx also showed how this uh, origin of profit, where profits came from, he showed how this leads to this inherent contradiction within the capitalist system. He said that its crises are not simply because of a lack of demand. The problem is that under capitalism, workers can never afford to buy back all the commodities that are being produced. In other words, it's not under consumption, as Keynesians and MMT uh, advocates suggest. Rather, it's overproduction that is the cause of crisis. And, and this is a very important thing to emphasize, because for the reformists and the, the Keynesians and the MMT, they think it's all about distribution. They think you can regulate capitalism, you can tax the rich in order to give workers a bit more money and, and get around this problem. But Marxism puts the emphasis not on distribution, but on production. The inequality we see around us is because of the, uh, the private ownership over the means of production. Inequality is inherent within capitalism because profits are the unpaid labor of the working class. And crises are also inherent within capitalism for the same reason. So all of these, the crises, the inequality, they can only be tackled by tackling the question of ownership. Instead of trying to tax the rich, we need to expropriate the, the, the capitalists. Now, it's, it's this, it's the overproduction that is at the root of all of these capitalist crises. But this leads to a very uh, interesting question. Why isn't capitalism always in crisis? 
Well, historically, the capitalists would reinvest their surplus in, in order to keep uh, the economy going. In fact, competition forces them to reinvest their surplus into more productive uh, industry and, and technology. It was this dynamic of competition that, that was what led Marx and Engels to say in the Communist Manifesto that, that, that capitalism had accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids and Roman aqueducts. They thought capitalism in its heyday was a, a very revolutionary system that helped develop the productive forces. And, it, and at the same time, the capitalists would try and overcome overproduction at home by looking for new markets abroad. And then again, in this sense, Marx and Engels saw capitalism as a progressive system that had created a world market. But all of these things Marx and Engels pointed out would just pave the way for even bigger crises in the future. Because by reinvesting their surplus into more production, into more technology, you're creating even more productive forces that had to find an even bigger market. And eventually the world market would become saturated and you get imperialist conflict like the First World War and the Second World War. And Keynesian programs have the same effect as this. As we said in terms of the example of China earlier, creating huge productive forces in all sorts of industries like steel, like smartphones, which flood the world market and create these tensions, create the rise of protectionism, create trade wars. And so capitalists would also look and have always looked towards another solution. They've turned to credit. In other words, lending workers money that they don't have in order to artificially and temporarily extend demand and expand the market. But on the other side of the, the coin of credit is debt. In other words, all of this credit that's been lent to, to households, to businesses, now it appears on the other side of the balance as a huge mountain of debt. And the investors will demand their pound of flesh. They want to get their, their, their money back with interest. Now, in the 1970s, after the big crisis, the global crisis there, we saw a huge boom in credit worldwide. And this was to try and overcome a simultaneous attack on workers' wages in, that, were, that was being conducted by governments, the Thatcherism, Reaganism, to try and boost profits. In other words, as, as workers' wages were being attacked, profits were maintained by lending workers money they didn't have. And this was the cause behind things like the subprime mortgage scandal in America and the financial crisis that exploded in 2007, 2008. In other words, when this bubble burst, it was it was that that accident was reflecting all of the underlying crisis of overproduction in the economy. And ever since that, the, the bourgeois have been desperately trying to overcome this crisis and get out of it, employing the most extraordinary measures to try and get around the crisis. But there's been no recovery, no real recovery since 2008. For the working class in particular, there's been no recovery. Inequality has grown and real wages have stagnated and even declined. Business investment and productivity growth have stalled. They talk about a productivity crisis. And this isn't just since 2008, but for decades before, since the 1970s. Larry Summers, who is a, a former uh, secretary at the Treasury, uh, he said that we're in what, an epoch of what he called secular stagnation. Uh, secular stagnation by Larry Summers, uh, former U.S. Treasury uh, Secretary. Paul Krugman, who's a, a kind of modern Keynesian economist, said that we're in a permanent slump. And now, obviously, what, what hope there was of a recovery amongst the bourgeois has disappeared with the pandemic. Now, at the same time, the ruling class, as I said, is out of ammunition. 
They've used up all of the weapons in their arsenal just trying to get out of the 2008 crisis. Interest rates, as I say, at zero or even negative, which means monetary policy is almost uh, redundant. They've tried quantitative easing and creating new money. But what this has done is just create volatility on stock markets and in asset prices. And if they keep printing money and keep trying to stimulate the economy that way, eventually there will be inflation. And as I say, at the same time, you've got this mountain of debt that now weighs down on demand and on the global economy. As a result of the pandemic, the IMF says that the, the, the global ratio of debt to GDP is now over 120%. But we have to emphasize there's no such thing as a final crisis of capitalism. The ruling class can always get some sort of recovery. They can always find a way out of the crisis, in particular by making the workers and the poor and the youth pay in the form of austerity and attacks. This is what they've been trying for the last decade. And this is what they're going to try in the years ahead to try and claw back all of this money that they've spent trying to prop up the system. But the result of this is it's going to provoke a revolutionary wave, a backlash amongst the working class. Already we can see this with the revolutionary movements that have broken out across the world over the last year. And our task is to intervene in these movements, to fight and struggle in, as part of this mass global movement and use the ideas of Marxism, of Marxist economics, to explain that we cannot patch up the capitalist system. We, we cannot patch up capitalism. It must be overthrown. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marxist Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.